really excited because Lynn Koek is here with us this morning and she's going to bring the message. Um, she's the provost and dean and a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and she's here with her husband Jim. A scripture reading is from Acts 16 verses 11 to 36 and I'm reading from the New International Version. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city in that district of Macedonia and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay in my home. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who tell you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, 
what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So will you join me as we pray for Lynn? Living God, we know um, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And we thank you that you have a word for us this morning. We thank you for Lynn, for all the things that she has experienced, all the things she's learned. Uh, Nothing is wasted in your hands. And you have molded her and shaped her And you have refined her to be here at this place to open up your word for us. We pray that you will empower her with your Holy Spirit, that you will fill her with your joy, that the goodness of the gospel will flow out of her. We also pray for her work that she does at Northern Seminary. We ask that students and also faculty members alike will come to a greater awareness of who you are through the work that she does, through the study that she does, the papers that she writes, the research that she does. And we also enrich her uh, marriage with Jim, that it will be one of profound love, of profound joy as well. Once again, we thank you for Lynn. Bless her and use her. Use her for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. morning. I'm delighted to be here, my husband and I, who will celebrate 41 years together tomorrow. I know. The best is yet to come, right? (laughs) That was great. We got married on July 4th. My father said he was going to dress up as Uncle Sam. (laughs) And you all just celebrated your Canada Day, right? A couple of days ago, so... Love the summertime, nice time for picnics and celebrations. Um, Well, I'm glad that we had a chance to look at the passage that we'll be talking about this morning. Thank you for reading that. Uh, It's a rather long narrative, but um, I think Luke wants us to to, uh, think about Lydia and the jailer together, as well as the... um, the slave girl, um, together, uh, because there's so so many similarities between uh, Lydia and the jailer. So that's why we're going to take this big chunk of scripture this morning. Um, 
The question I think that animates this passage is the question the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? I think embedded in this question are presuppositions about the character of God, about a person's own character, and then also the meaning of what's the good life. In Paul's visit to Philippi, he meets a God-fearer, Lydia. The um, God-fearer is a Gentile who was interested in the Jewish way of life but had not uh, become a proselyte. So they had not converted to Judaism, but they visited the synagogue, heard um, the law read, maybe followed certain food laws or um, rested on Sabbath. There's a range of, of actions that these God-fearers could do. So we meet a God-fearer, we meet a slave woman who's possessed by a demon, and we meet the pagan jailer who asks this question, what must I do to be saved, that kind of drives Paul's whole ministry here in Philippi. I think their actions also um, show us not just the character of God, but their own character. Now, there's one other key player or players in this uh, section of Scripture, namely the slave owners. And they also play a very important role in moving the plot forward. We will also take a look at them, their actions, their attitudes. So we'll look at all of these characters as the story unfolds. And I think what we'll find is that in all three cases, with Lydia, the slave girl, and her owners, and then with the jailer, all three of those smaller pericopes, they all come in contact with the gospel. And in every case, there's this response that is compelled by hearing the gospel message. As we see, some respond with hospitality, but others with anger at their perceived loss. In any case, we find the gospel is not a mere assent to uh, an idea or a viewpoint. The gospel signals a deep conviction that reorients all decisions, all actions in light of the redemptive message. Now, I understand that you all have been going through the book of Acts, and so I kind of remind you a little bit um, of the gospel message that Paul preached. For example, you can see it in Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 26, and following where we have an example of Paul's message he talks, he locates the gospel message first in the Old Testament, recognizing the messianic prophets there, recognizing the God of the Old Testament, the one true God, the creator God is the God of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one raised from the dead, the one who forgives sins. So this is the gospel that he's also preaching here in Philippi. This is what the Lydia heard, what the uh, jailer heard. This character of God, this God who is the one true God, has chosen Israel, but through the Messiah has brought all people to himself, Jew, Jew and Gentile. So let's turn now to Acts 16. Luke tells us that Paul had a vision 
a vision of a man in Macedonia, which is uh, current, currently today would be northern Greece. And this vision, this man beckons Paul to come over and help him. Now, this vision uh, breaks up what must have been a confusing time for Paul. Uh, the Holy Spirit had been limiting his travel. The text tells us that the the doors were closing for Paul to go into Bithynia, which is in the what is today northern Turkey along the Black Sea. And so Paul knows he's been called to preach, but then certain doors are being closed off. I like that note that that uh, Luke mentions here because I have found at times in my own life or others testifying to me, telling me their stories where they feel a call of God and then it seems like they're roadblocks along the way. I think Paul uh, models for all of us the proper response to those apparent roadblocks or speed bumps, whatever you want to call it. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. At some point, there'll be some vision <laughs> or some open door, uh, and you walk forward through it. Well, when he gets to Philippi, it's a less than a day's walk from the port of Neapolis up into Philippi. He finds a city there about ten to 15,000. It's not a big city. It's not like Ephesus or Corinth. It's a small city. You'll have a couple of Roman veterans there, um, retired army, uh, Roman army, lots of Greeks, because after all, it was uh, a Greek city before it became a Roman colony. Um, and then numerous other ethnic groups would all be there in Philippi. Now, Luke makes the point that Philippi was a Roman colony, as I mentioned, and what this means is that Philippi had an elite status. It was like a city on Italian soil. There were very few cities at this time in the first century that had, outside of, outside of uh, Italy, that would have had this kind of um, high status. And the reason it was given this high status is that outside the city, on the plains outside the city, there was a decisive battle between Mark Antony and uh, Octavian against uh, Cassius and Brutus, the two men who were the instigators of the murder of Julius Caesar. Uh, later, Mark Antony and Octavian end up fighting each other, and with the victory, Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus. But here in Philippi, there was this very decisive battle where... Um, the, the city uh, is commemorated as a place of great victory for um, Octavian. So the city uh, would have, uh, well, at least the Romans there would have been very proud of that, uh, of that history. I don't know if some of the ethnic Greeks would have felt quite as happy or not. You know, I I don't know. But what is interesting to me is when Paul writes the letter to the Philippians years later, he mentions citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a savior. Paul doesn't use that language in any other of his epistles, and I think he mentions it to the Philippians because there's this current of citizenship. Are you going to align with Rome 
this is a Roman colony, or are you going to align with Jesus Christ? Well, the first of our three key encounters happens uh, shortly after Paul arrives. Paul and his companions, let's think here probably Silas, who's mentioned, of course, but then Timothy and probably Luke, among perhaps others, are there. That's the group that's traveling. And they head outside the city to a spot next to a river. Now, you all here in Vancouver get a, enough rain to know what a river is and then what a stream is and what a creek is, or I was raised in south-central Pennsylvania where we can call it a crick. Um, think crick here. Don't think river. Uh, it's all relative, right, depending on how much water you have. Anyway, it's not a big big river. It's a little... Um, and there are a group of Jewish women and God-fearers who are meeting there on the Sabbath. Luke calls this place where they're meeting a prosuke, a house of prayer. And in, um, in the literature of this time, you can find synagogue and prosuke as synonyms. I, Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke tends to be really careful about the language that he uses. He uh, when he describes a city, um, he'll use the, the typical language of that city in describing things. So it, it's uh, very likely the case that here in Philippi, they wouldn't talk synagogue, they would talk prosuke, house of prayer. But I don't want us to minimize the importance of this group as though it's a less than option. Um, the group is meeting outside the city, which probably means it's a small group, and as you heard um, in the scripture read, uh, the, the city itself is uh, anti-Jew, right? When he, the, the first charge against Paul by those who are angry at him is, these men are Jews, right? So there's an antagonism towards Jews um, and probably a very small Jewish community here. There are no Jewish men at this meeting. Now, later rabbinic teaching so later documents, a couple hundred years later, the rabbis indicate that a proper synagogue needs 10 men, a menin. You might have um, heard of that. 10 men kind of count to make something a synagogue. But the rabbinic texts also say that God's presence is there when studying Torah, no matter how many people. So I don't want us to downgrade this meeting as though it's just um, a lady's tea out by the stream. This is serious Torah study going on. Paul meets Lydia, and he identify, she's identified as a God-fearer. Now, again, God-fearers are those who admire Judaism but do not become proselytes. Synagogues in the ancient world were not sacred spaces, so Gentiles were more than welcome into that space. So you would have God-fearers in, uh, in, in a lot of these diaspora synagogues. And in fact, there are well-known uh, Gentile sympathizers, um, Nero's wife and also Nero's mother, Agrippina the Younger, Nero's mother, um, was a sympathizer. So... Anyway, Lydia has her heart opened by God, and she accepts the gospel message. Now, who is this Lydia? 
Well, we she deals in purple cloth. She's originally from Thyatira, which is in Asia Minor, so not too far from Paul. The Asia Minor would be modern Turkey, kind of a little bit um, east in the interior from the uh, coast along the Aegean. She has a house. She has a household, and there's no mention of a husband. Now, Lydia is a common Roman name, and her occupation suggests that uh, she is at least well off. I'm not going to call her rich. There weren't that many rich people at this time, but she was well off. Uh, her, she had a house uh, large enough that it could accommodate Paul and his group. And she would have had enough extra income to be able to feed them. She invited them, and that means that she's likely the mistress of her house. So is that that she's a widow? That's very possible. Uh, It is also possible that she's divorced. In the ancient world, you had what we might call today no-fault divorce, where the couple just decided they didn't want to live together anymore, and so they broke off the the marriage. Um, And it's possible that her husband was on like a long journey, gone for... I don't know, a year, more, something like that. I think that's the least likely uh, option. But um, at any rate, she could speak for her household, and, and she does. They're all baptized, probably because they all felt that Lydia, as the uh, leader of the home, showed good judgment. Okay? So the... Uh, in in the ancient world, the the one who um, leads the household, or who uh, we might use the language of head of the household, although that's head of household would not easily translate back into Greek of the first century because they didn't use head that way, but we would use it like that. Um, that the um, she was. She was seen as the, the one who would know best what to do with, with the family. I'm trying to, to describe to you how the community worked at this time, as opposed to the individualism that we're very comfortable with in the, in the West uh, today. The baptism of Lydia and her household will be replicated again at the end of our story with the jailer, and his household. Now, Lydia's response upon hearing the gospel, she is baptized and she offers hospitality by inviting Paul and his group to stay in her house. And this is, um, in a way, a surprising uh, request in, in this way. Not the hospitality thing, because people were always providing hospitality for others. It was a very important virtue. But remember, she's a God-fear. She's a Gentile. And we know that Paul is Jewish. So she, she recognizes in the gospel message that Paul preaches that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, created one new humanity out of the two. He brought together the Jew and the Gentile. So when she says to Paul, come and stay in my house, he kind of has to do a bit of a gut check. 
like now it becomes personal, right? And he has to think, okay, as a Jewish man, I'm going to be going into this house and I can't fuss about kosher stuff, right? I can't, I can't fuss about the, my, my years of upbringing that have taught me what clean and unclean is because the gospel has made us all new in Christ. That's why the, the language here, I think, in Acts is persuaded, Right. In other words, she said, okay, if you really believe that I am your sister in Christ, then come and stay with me. And, and I don't mean to paint Paul as resistant here. I'm just saying that here was an, an example of the success of his ministry, and now he, he stepped into it. And, uh, and Paul is, uh, is a team player. We'll see this again in Acts 19. Paul's, uh, in, there's another riot there. Uh, as you're probably familiar, and Demetrius the Silversmith is making some accusations, and um, Paul's ready to defend himself there, and the other believers say, don't, hold, hold back, let's solve this another way, and Paul listens to them, he's persuaded by them. I love that about Paul. He is a team player. He's not a my way or the highway kind of God. His leadership is exemplary, especially in this day and age of charismatic leaders that um, don't feel beholden to, uh, to the group. Well, having a home base then in Lydia's house, Paul begins to nurture this group of believers, and he also continues to visit the prosuke, the house of prayer, and this is where he meets opposition in the form of a demon-possessed slave girl. She's worth a lot of money to her owners because she has this spirit in her. It's connected with uh, Pythia, the prophetess of um, the prophetess who gave true predictions. In the, in the ancient myth, the god Apollo um, defeats the serpent Python, and that's commemorated in a big way in the temple at Delphi, which was a very important religious site in, uh, in ancient Greece as well up into the um, Greco-Roman period with Paul. So this slave girl, and I don't, I say, I'm saying girl because that's the, the language in, in Greek um, em- emphasizes that, but I don't know what her age is. So this slave girl, she follows after Paul. She shouts what, on the surface, sounds true, right? These men are servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you the way to be saved. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's the problem? Well, I think there's a couple reasons why Paul was annoyed. First, any demon possession would distress the apostle, right? Because here he sees a human that's in the clutches of the demonic. So that would bother him no matter what. But secondly, her message relativizes the gospel's distinctiveness. You see, with her as a mouthpiece, everybody knows that she speaks uh, from this position uh, related to the oracle at Delphi, right? So... When she says, listen to them, this most high God, she's imagining this God in the the whole pantheon. Not the one true God, but a God. And so this God among many gods can, can save, but 
not exclusive. Elsewhere in Paul's letters, um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk about only a believer can truly say that Jesus is Lord. Right? So this, the demon in this um, slave girl takes the one true God, the Most High, and mixes him into the broader grouping of gods. And then she follows him around. And so she continues to malign his testimony. There is a battle, actually, is what I'm trying to set up for you here. There is a battle between the forces of paganism and the one true God on display here. Paul frees her from her demon possession. Notice that in the text he speaks to the demon, not to the slave girl, because it's the demon who is battling the gospel message. We don't hear any more about the slave girl in the narrative. I'd like to think that she joined the group of believers, maybe like Mary Magdalene, who Luke tells us in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, that seven demons were cast out of her. Maybe um, like Mary Magdalene, this woman also joined, uh, joined the group. But instead of telling us what happened with her, Luke shifts the, the spotlight to the owners. They are angry. And they are vindictive. The slave girl was their means of wealth. And now the possibility of more and more wealth was gone. The text says they realized that their hope of making money was gone. That word hope kind of leaped off the page to me. Because when I think of hope, I think of the hope of the gospel message, right? Our, our sure and certain hope of resurrection. Like it's a positive word to me. And when I saw it there, their hope of making money. Yeah. So their God is the God of greed. Uh, Paul will talk about in Ephesians 5 how um, greed is idolatry. And we see this on display right here in their reactions. The slave owners hoped in the here and now and focused on gaining money. And when they were thwarted, they stirred up a crowd and they dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities. This is going to happen in the forum, uh, a kind of open space with some government uh, buildings, some um, monuments, some um, yeah, small temples, uh, all in this space. This, you want to imagine a space that's very pagan, very Roman, a lot of power being expressed in this space. And the crowd is there, uh, the public gets very heated very quickly. The charges are anti-Jewish. So Paul and Silas, of course, are Jews. Um, but the Jewish teaching that they're bringing is appealing to pagan Gentiles. And if pagan Gentiles decide to follow Jesus Christ, then like Lydia they are renouncing their ancestral gods. They're renouncing the imperial cult, which was active here in Philippi. 
and the major gods and goddesses that protect the city of Philippi and the families that live there. This, if I could say it, godless behavior by Lydia and others who might be attracted, Gentile pagans who might be attracted to the gospel message, upset the status quo. And, of course, the pocketbooks of some. Paul and Silas are beaten and they're thrown in prison. They're chained in the darkness. What what I'd like to know... <laughs> as I was reading through this text, and maybe you felt the same way. As you're reading through, you think, Paul, why didn't you, when they first threatened to beat you, why didn't you at that point say, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen? I would have done that. (laughs) But I lack courage. Um, I think there, I think Paul uh, saw the situation in, in a different way, he had some things he was considering, and that's why he didn't immediately pull out the um, Roman citizen card. Not that, that he had, like, a little card, but th- there, were, there were actual physical documents, but it's not like a driver's license. Um, well, I think, first of all, he, he was aware of the strong anti-Jewish sentiments that were in part driving this, And so um, to deflect something from him wouldn't necessarily mean that the rest of the people, his people, would have been spared. So he was willing to to absorb the anger of that moment to help uh, his people, the Jews. And then second, this scene is very chaotic. It's volatile, and I bet it's loud. People screaming, shouting, hollering. You can't be heard. It's not a time where you just try to talk rationally and and debate quietly. And then finally, I think Paul wanted to keep his citizenship, um, sort of his ace up his sleeve, if I can use a probably inappropriate analogy in church. <laughs> um, once the crowd was dispersed, he could then talk with the magistrates. And at that point, he would have influence over them because they would have contravened the Roman directives that say you cannot beat a Roman citizen without, uh, without due process. Right? So in other words, Paul had one shot with his Roman citizenship, and he wanted to make it count. I think it's an important lesson for leaders, for for all of us, really. Paul doesn't insist on his rights um, right away or as though he's the only one that matters. He takes a long view. He evaluates the situation so that it protects all people. He'll say something similar in analogous way in 1 Corinthians 6. There's a great phrase there. Paul asks the Corinthians, why not rather be wronged? I love that line. Why not rather be wronged? The context is civil disputes in the, um, within the congregation. Uh, it's not criminal charges being addressed. This is about probably one believer loaning money to another believer, and that other believer then could not 
uh, payback. And so there was this civil case that might be raised. And Paul says, why not rather be wronged? I feel like he modeled that here. Okay, go ahead and wrong me because there's a better good that will come. Yeah. Well, in that dark prison cell, Paul and Silas are singing psalms. They're praying to God. The other prisoners are hearing them. And I can imagine that would just be like a balm to their soul, those other prisoners. I assume there's a meeting at Lydia's house where the other believers are praying for Paul. Um, and then the earthquake happens and damages the prison in such a way that the prisoner's um, chains are loosed. Um, the jailer knows that if a prisoner escapes, it'll be his life for the prisoner's life. So he's quite terrified, but before he can kill himself, as opposed to being tortured and killed by the magistrates, Paul stops him. All the prisoners are accounted for. Well, the jailer interprets this earthquake as an act of God, an act of Paul's God, and that's when he asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is so simple, but of course so profound. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, believe here means to trust, to display absolute allegiance to another. It doesn't simply mean recite the Nicene Creed. It doesn't simply mean quote the Ten Commandments, as important as those are. It's not, in other words, a conviction about a set of propositions. Believe in the Lord Jesus is a life-encompassing turnaround that reorients all values, all goals, in light of the gospel. And what does the jailer do? How does he show that he believes in the Lord Jesus? He washes Paul's wounds. He washes Paul's wounds, and then he himself is washed in the waters of baptism. I find that ordering very interesting. I think it brings together the importance of our convictions, our very important convictions about who Jesus Christ is, fully human, fully divine, raised bodily from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins, and the I'm going to wash the wounds of the prophet who told me this, the apostle who told me this. It's a both and. So the jailer is baptized along with his household, having washed the wounds of Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? Belief. But that looks like caring for others who are in desperate need. Not only actually are Paul's, Paul and Silas's wounds healed, but they're also given a meal. So we might ask Lydia or the jailer, what does it feel like to be, to be saved? And they might answer, well, it feels like joy. It, it feels like compassion. It feels like freedom to do good. 
Now, in the end, Paul and Silas will leave Philippi with food in their belly, their wounds clean. They're going to be granted honor, Paul will, as a Roman citizen. And he uses this honor. We didn't have a chance to read it this morning, but he uses this honor to go to Lydia's house uh, before he leaves the city. By doing this, not only is he picking up his stuff, you know, to travel to the next town, but he indicates to her and to all the watching neighbors that she is a friend of his. She is a friend of a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship, like what Paul had in this first century, was not uh, very widely held. So it was a big deal that Lydia's friend had Roman citizenship. All right, so his patron, that is Lydia who helped him, he repays by by uh, giving to her a cover of his Roman citizenship. I think people would uh, at least think twice before trying to pick on her or the other believers. Paul heads to the next town. We head to our Sunday lunches. As we leave this place today, how will we imitate Lydia? Is your heart ready to be opened? And once opened, are you ready to demonstrate your love for Christ with hospitality? I have to say, I've never really liked the word hospitality. And I think it's because I have always felt I'm not good at it. Yeah, I I don't like to cook. First week we were married, I thought I'll make a blueberry pie. It burned, it spilled over in the oven, smoke coming everywhere, fire, you know, the smoke alarm goes off. I have to open all the, the doors in the house. It's in, yeah. And it's been pretty steady state or downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. We lived in Kenya for a couple of years, and there, um, you know, you made, uh, we were in a more rural area, and, and so we made all of our dinners, and I figured out I had five dinners that I could make with they'd be edible. So, but then I had to remember, like, what of those five did I serve that person when I invited them a second time to the house? It was not fun. Yeah. Felt very inferior that way. And the other big thing is, of course, uh, being able to greet people in their um, mother tongue and, and to be able to converse in that way. And I am just not good in these, in the verbal I have to see it written in my head and then read it out in my head, and then, uh-oh, it's, I'm not good at that. So I felt very inferior in terms of hospitality. Can't cook, can't talk. Oh, anyway. Um, but, you know, a couple of years, we were there for three years, and then I went back two years later and stayed with a, um, a family, a mission, another missionary family, who I always felt were, like, great at hospitality. They, they were very active in learning, uh, not just Kiswahili, which I was also learning, but the um, language of our area was Kikuyu, so learning that. Um, and the uh, woman was an excellent cook, you know, and just, just did all those nice things, you know, that I always forgot to do. Um, well, I was sitting out with a couple of my um, Kenyan lady friends, um, just chit-chatting at the end of the day, and this, uh, my hostess comes up 
and uh, she greets them um, in Kikuyu. Um, but they kind of look at her like they're not understanding. So they ask for clarification. She repeats it. They still are not really sure what she's saying. I, of course, don't know. Um, and, and she says it a third time. And then, and they're still not understanding. So finally she says it in Swahili, and they all go, ah, you know, and they smile. As she turns to walk in the house, she goes, Sijui, which means, I know. And I just thought, wow, (laughs) here's a woman that I thought really modeled hospitality. But it occurred to me that she was actually trying to learn the language in order to control the conversation. Like, how, how can you say to people who, this is her mother tongue, and if they don't understand what you're saying, it's probably because you're not saying it right. So instead of a posture of learning, well, tell me how to say what I'm trying to say. Her response was, I know. It just changed everything for me, and I, I realized I've been understanding hospitality in a very small kind of way. We can use hospitality to control others or to uh, raise up our own set of worth, self-worth. That's not what Lydia does. She wants to, to give Paul and his ministry a place where they can thrive. It's not about her. That frees me a little bit with hospitality. Then I think, okay, <laughs> we can set the bar really low with food, but uh, at least you'll be hungry. At least you won't be hungry. And um, yeah, how will we imitate Paul? Paul factors in in all of these stories. He was persuaded by Lydia. Can you still learn things? I ask this myself. Can I still learn something from my students after teaching for decades? Can we learn something from our quote-unquote subordinate at work, the summer intern, a new believer at church? Paul models for us being a team player. He, he's open to what God is saying through anyone in his team. And how about the jailer? How are we going to imitate the jailer? He wasn't looking. He wasn't looking for God, that, that we know of, and then he saw God work. How are we alert to God working around us? And are we then willing to be involved in that work? Both the jailer and Lydia are going to face social pressures. I don't know if the jailer would be fired. He may have been fired once the magistrates realized that he has become a believer, um, Are people going to stop buying Lydia's goods because she's a follower of the crucified Jewish Messiah? The jailer and Lydia took risks for sure, absolutely. But the jailer is said to have joy. As we close, how, how do we avoid imitating the slave owners? Avoiding using another human as a means to our own ends. There's such a stark contrast here, isn't there, between Lydia and the jailer on the one hand, just freely giving, thinking of the other, and the slave owners. 
I have to say, uh, I think that contrast can run straight through the center of my own heart. Paul talks about, you know, having the sinful nature, having the, the flesh, the passions that we struggle against. So I don't always trust myself to know what my motives are. It's, it's a struggle, but, but like the jailer experience, there is great joy in believing in God, such great joy. That's what Paul says, forgetting what's behind, I push on, I stretch on, I rely daily on the Spirit in me, and that gives us great joy. That joy that the jailer had is our joy. So let us walk in that joy today. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.